This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Beautiful. Uh, sure, you saw a little bit of the inauguration yesterday. Thought it was great. How could you not? Just the right amount of pomp and circumstance and tradition. Not too much, not too little. It was great. It was perfect. Uh, and now today you got the uh, the goofy women's march going on. My wife asked me this morning, uh, she said, what do they mean by women's rights? I love that question. I mean, it's the same wife who I asked uh, a year and a half ago. I said, what are, I said, wife, what are the three most important issues to you? Right? This is, women's issues, right? Women's issues. What are the most important issues to you, a woman? She said, uh, uh, economy, national security, and education. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, me too. So they're just important issues, not women's issues. They're just just issues. Same thing as with rights. There's no man's rights or women's rights, just rights. But let's be real. It's all about abortion. But, of course, the right of uh, unborn baby girls don't count. Maybe we'll chat a little more about that later. I, w- I want to add a, a little bit of perspective to the inauguration that I think is really important. I'm sure you've heard a hundred times yesterday, and I'm sure you remember it from eight years ago and, and years before that. And, and, and whenever there's an inauguration, you always hear over and over again, peaceful transfer of power. And you've heard it so many times, and we're so used to it, that we've completely lost touch with how miraculous that is. But I want to tell a quick story here of the norm. Now, I'm not going to go, uh, I'm not going to make up a hypothetical. I'm, I'm not going to go way back in history. I'm going to go all the way back to Thursday in the Gambia. Well, let, let me go back to 1994 for the start of the story. So 1994, uh, there was a guy named Lieutenant Yaya Jama. Cool name, right? Yaya Jama. And he was in the Gambian National Army. The Gambia is a, a, a sliver of a country in, in West Africa. So he was a lieutenant in the army, and he led a military coup over the government. It was a very odd situation. No bloodshed. Um, the, the country was ripe for something because the, the leader who was there was there for 30 years. And for whatever reason, he said he was going to step down. So there's this big power vacuum. And this guy in the military uh, rose up and became the president. So, so Jama, Yaya Jama was the president of the Gambia in 1994. He won re-election in 2001 and then 2006 and 2011. But these are all kind of fake elections. But in December, he had another election and he lost. <laughs> Some other guy won, Adama Barra won with 45% of the vote. This is just in December, like last month. So Barrow was sworn in to be the new president of the Gambia on Thursday. But he was sworn in in the country next door, Senegal. Weird. Why was 
Why was he sworn in in, in in Senegal? That'd be like Trump being sworn in in Canada to be the president of America. Why? Why? He did it because the current president, Yahya Jama, refused to step down. He declared a state of emergency, refuses to step down. So in Gambia, right now, there's no peaceful transfer of power. Again, I'm not making a story up. I'm not having to go, you know, uh, back in uh, uh, 1842, in, in, uh, like today, right, right now it's going on. So neighboring countries are preparing to go to war with the Gambian leader until he steps down. Now, the latest is today. He said he will step down and he says there's no need for blood to be shed. But saying I will step down is very different than I'm stepping down. Like, or like, here you go. Like that. So he hasn't stepped down yet. I'm sure he's just buying his time. So the place is a mess, right? People are fleeing the country. Thousands of tourists have already left. And people are fleeing the country because... If, 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 if they find out, if the government finds out that, that their family supported this challenger guy, they're dead. This is the normal. In the history of the world, this is the normal transfer of power process. Right? Someone wins an election, or if, even if there is an election, which is kind of a new concept too, and then the guy says no, and then there's a war or a threat of a war, and then someone is killed, and then it's over, or... Or, or tra- power is transferred or it's not transferred. Right? Like people usually die throughout these things. This is how countries normally work. But in America, we've never had anything but a peaceful transfer of power. That's why we take it so for granted. This makes us unique in human history. It makes us exceptional in human history. So when you reflect on what happened yesterday, and you may be happy because Trump won, you may be upset because Trump won, you might be a little nervous that Trump won. Just what happened yesterday, though, think about how, how grateful it is to be an American. Because people in the Gambia today who are fleeing the country, who have fled the country, they're looking at us right now and thinking, oh, why can't we be more like America in that regard? Now, if I may, that's this is the reason why I think it's so shameful that the, whatever, 60 congressmen didn't show up yesterday. It's shameful. First of all, it's selfish because it's putting attention on you, right? So you're being selfish, but also it's wildly short-sighted. Because again, people are literally today fleeing the country or who have fled the country because they, 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 they live in a country without a peaceful transfer of power. And these congressmen are members of a government and citizens in a country that has a peaceful transfer of power. And that's what yesterday was all about. It was about the transfer of power. Listen, Trump already won. All right. These protest, these, these congressmen protesting like, like, as if it's the day after the election. He already won. What happened yesterday was all ceremonial. So it's the ceremony and what that represents that they were really boycotting. And that is shameful. You know, the left always throws around the, uh, this line, the world is watching. I bet you hear it today at the, the Women's March, right? The world is watching. And it's usually in this, uh, oh, it's like this condescending, uh, you know, outrage at the way Trump is acting or whatever. Like, oh, can you believe this man? Oh, it's outrageous. You know, the, the world is watching. It's embarrassing. Something like that, right? Here in America, we got the same protesters. Uh, they got the, uh, the, the queer dance parties and, and cough-ins at Trump's restaurants. 
And then a bunch of, uh, you know, rioting yesterday. <laughs> I just want to say, you know what? Uh, the world's watching. So class up. And you know what, Congressman? The world is watching. The people of Gambia are watching. And you're so selfish and you take this so for granted that you boycott the, the inauguration. Pretty lame. How about a little awareness? How about a little awareness of how exceptional that process is in human history? That's all. 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. So let's just hope the, the president of the Gambia or the former president steps down uh, lest more people die. one 888 Wow, I think we might do one last segment on Barack Obama. And that's it. And then we're done. <laughs> I plan on never doing another one again. Uh, he uses this term a lot in his speeches throughout the last eight years. And it's not, it's not, uh, he quotes, he quotes uh, someone and it's not the right quote. <laughs> it's not a complete quote. I'll tell you about that next. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Individuals and businesses with tax problems, listen carefully. If you owe over $10,000 in back taxes or have unfiled tax returns, we can help you take back control. The IRS is the largest and most aggressive collection agency in the world, and they can seize your bank account, garnish your paycheck, close your business, and file criminal charges. Take control of your tax problems now by calling the experts at Tax Mediation Services at 800-600-1645. That's 800-600-1645. 800-600-1645. Thanks for being here. Um, this may be our last Barack Obama I mean, Gosh, I hope it is. Uh, so he would use a, a certain line in a bunch of his speeches. Uh, one of his favorite themes. There's two. Oh, by the way, I just uh, went to the NPR website. The first story, the very first story on the top is, let me scroll up. As world watches, Trump become president, protests, and some celebration. Uh, the world is watching, right? There it is. Perfect, exactly, exactly what I was saying. Um, so one of his uh, favorite themes is, it, it kind of comes in two forms. History is on our side, or, or history is not on their side, or something like that. And, and he'll use it against Republicans, with, with Republican tax policy, like history is not on their side. And he'll use it against ISIS. We're going to defeat ISIS because history's on our side. And it's this very vague, nothing statement. Like, what do you mean we'll defeat ISIS because history's on our side? It's not a, doesn't mean anything. But the more specific line that he uses more often is, quote, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He likes that quote so much, he actually, in, in the Oval Office, uh, around the, the office, is that quote in the rug, right? So it's like, an, it's like weaved into the rug. Uh, that's, that's how much, it, that's the theme of his presidency. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And he quotes Martin Luther King Jr. So progressives and conservati- conservatives have criticized Obama for this line. Progressives don't like it because it implies that they don't need to be activists for whatever you name it, immigration, because the moral arc of the universe will bend that way anyway. So they, they, it's as if they, they complain that 
that line means we don't need to march in the streets because no matter what we do, the arc of the moral universe is bending our direction anyway. Conservatives are against the line because bad ideas are not predestined to lose. You have to beat them, right? Like communism, Nazism, whatever is not predestined to lose. You have to beat it. You have to bend the arc of the universe towards good. So people go back and forth and bicker over it. But the reason that there's bickering over it is because it's not the full quote. (laughs) So, So we're bickering over something that doesn't even make any sense. Michael Ware was Obama's faith outreach coordinator in the 2012 election. And he's got a new book. It's called Reclaiming Hope. So he's had a lot of interaction with Barack Obama, obviously. And he says that that line is taken out of context and it's used inappropriately to bless a whole range of political solutions when that's not what the reverend Martin Luther King Jr. meant when he said it. By the way, it's amazing to me. Maybe we could talk about this later if we have a second, but how how, uh, the reverend part of MLK Jr., the Jesus part, the pastor part, the Christian part of MLK and his message has been completely erased from Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. Day. But I digress. Here's the full quote uh, from MLK. Evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But that same Christ will rise up and split history into A.D. and B.C. so that even the life of Caesar must be dated by Jesus' name. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Now, he threw that quote in there because he was actually quoting uh, a gentleman by the name of uh, Theodore Parker, who was a a pastor in the 1850s. So it wasn't even MLK who said that. Yes, he said it, but he was quoting someone else who said it before him. So MLK's point is that on earth, the good guys don't always win, right? Caesar is in power. Right? Evil may so shape events, he's saying, right? So, so the good guys aren't winning. Caesar is in power. And there's no guarantee that things are going to get better. But we have Jesus, who was on the cross at the time. Right? He was on the cross in a lowly position. Caesar was in the palace. Christ was on the cross. But in the end, time is determined by Jesus, not Caesar. We don't date the year based on Caesar. We date it based off of Jesus. The point is you can't take Jesus out of that quote. (laughs) That's the point of it. As Michael Ware says, it's now lost its meaning. It's politicized. And people apply it as if to say we passed tax reform and now it's about the moral arc of the universe. No, that's not (laughs) what the moral arc of the universe is about. All right, I want to play a clip here. This is of uh, Matthew Ware talking to uh, Matt Lewis on, on Matt Lewis's podcast. I want to play a few minutes of this, 1280. Is that, that that's a misinterpretation. If, you, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you know what's the line. I've read the end of the book. We win. Um, so we may go through some hard times. And in fact, we could regress as a civilization. Um, we could go through a dark ages. But in the end, we will ultimately... So, so Matt... Know, the, the story of hope and history is not 
about us progressing towards perfection. It's about God progressing and coming towards us. Uh, That is, the moral arc of the universe is about Jesus, God incarnate, coming to us, not us somehow working our way uh, to him, working our way to heaven. Um, And and that is is key. And if you don't agree with that, um, that's fine. But that's that's what Dr. King was talking about. So I, I, I lay it out in Reclaiming Hope in the same paragraph where he quotes, uh, I believe it was a, a Reverend Parker, um, a congregationalist minister. In the same paragraph that he quotes that, he talks about uh, how, how Caesar thought uh, he was in control, uh, but it was uh, Jesus Christ who, defi- who uh, divided uh, B.C. from A.D., um, talking about? Uh, we, we, we date history by, by Jesus, not by Caesar. Um, and he, 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 uh, he riffs on that, but it culminates, um, the, the, the whole message is about, is about faith. Um, it, not a sort of Kantian enlightenment sort of, uh, uh, uh things are all going to get better from here. But don't you think that president Obama benefited from and intentionally propagated the notion again, when your hope is in the right place, in a secure place, and you could hope for all kinds of things, and it's good for our politics to be uh, hopeful and about sort of um, uh, uh, be about uh, advancing justice and uh, uh, and securing freedom and all of these good things that are rooted in in old ideas. Um, but when they're um, when they're detached. Um, or when they sort of um, when they sort of uh, are compl- when hope is confined solely to the realm of politics, then you're not doing anybody any favors. Uh, that is a hope that will not last. That is a hope that will not bear the burdens of of our our best aspirations. Um, and and so uh, sort well, I of think on, it's actually on that count. Um, uh, we it's the responsibility of the citizen to accept that politicians are going to be politicians and they're focused on what they're focused on. Uh, a citizen needs to um, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about politics being important, but that uh, when we make politics, uh, quote unquote, the, the food of the mind, um, we've 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 sort of enlarged it to a sense. That it's not healthy and uh, it's very very easy to see politics as becoming food of the mind for oh, yeah. the average citizen. Let me stop there. So that, I mean, that, I that C.S. Lewis quote that he's referring to there, it's a classic C.S. Lewis quote. Um, he said, a sick society must think a lot about politics, just like a sick man must think a lot about his digestion. Because to ignore the subject may be fatal cowardice. But if either comes to regard it, either person comes to regard it as the natural food of the mind, it either forgets that we think of such things only in order to be able to think of something else. Then what was undertaken for the sake of health has become itself a new and deadly disease. C.S. Lewis is tough to understand. Let me translate. Um, politics is not the end. Politics is a means uh, to, to perfect the end, which is worshiping God. Similarly about digestion. If, if you're sick, you got to think about food and digesting properly. But that's not the end. You don't just eat food for eating food's sake. You digest food so that you can go live and do other things. Politics is not the end. Politics is a necessary evil, if you will, so that you can then go do other things. 
right? So only a sick person only thinks about politics. Yes, politics are important, but why are they important? They're important to then, therefore, C.S. Lewis and MLK said, go worship God and Jesus. Uh, That part of the moral arc of the universe is often left out of the quote. But that is the essence of the quote. 1-888-900-3393. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Slater Slater. So Chris uh, Saliza of the Washington Post. He was mocking Trump the other day because 0%. 0% of Donald Trump's cabinet picks have what? Hmm. 0% of Donald Trump's cabinet picks have what? What could it be? Zero percent of Donald Trump's cabinet picks have PhDs, and and the Washington Post criticizing Trump for that. I think that's awesome. <laughs> like, what's what's the problem? PhDs are nice. If you, if you want to get one, you knock yourself out. But in many fields, I would pick experience over credentials, and right? I would pick experience over. Education. Because while 0% of Donald Trump's picks have PhDs, 0% of Barack Obama's cabinet members were ever CEOs. So I choose experience. Meanwhile, 28% of Donald Trump's picks were CEOs. 28% were in the military. Only 47% have government experience. That's a good thing. Compared to Barack Obama and George W. Bush had 91% of his cabinet picks had government experience. Trump, 47%. The left doesn't understand these are good things. This is exactly why people voted for Trump. We don't want people there who have government experience. We want real world experience so we can apply real world principles. So 28% of his cabinet members are military men, meaning they got some pretty good foreign policy experience, I'd say. So who would you rather have, a PhD in military affairs or a four-star general who's been out in the field? And by the way, the four-star general, Mad Dog Mattis, is one of the most learned and scholarly military men in American history. So you get a, you get a twofer with Mad Dog Mattis. So would you rather have uh, some senator be a secretary of state who's been a politician? It's all that. Think about this. Would you rather have a senator be a secretary of state who got into politics and city council and then went up to state assembly, then state senator, uh, then congressman, then U.S. senator? So he's been in politics his whole life. Or would you rather have the CEO of one of the largest companies in the world who has his experience running a staff much larger and a budget way larger than even the U.S. State Department in Rex Tillerson? So Liza says that Trump's cabinet picks are radically unorthodox. Yeah, that's the point, champ. I want to talk about um, something that we've mentioned a lot last couple weeks here a couple months even but i think it's it's so important so this is from victor davis hansen uh, one of my favorite commentators he's a farmer and a professor at stanford he is the foremost historian in ancient military history and i love his analysis throughout this entire campaign because he never once was ever surprised by anything about donald trump meaning the rise of donald trump Because he knows his history and he knows that this has happened many, 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 many times before. And he wrote a brilliant article this weekend, the other weekend, uh, 
talking about the true divide in America, which we've talked about a bunch of times. It's not left versus right. It's not conservative versus liberal or whatever. It's city versus country. And it's always been city versus country. So I want to share some of the insight uh, that, that he has on this divide, on the city versus country differences. And you determine if, if this is the exact same thing that's going on today. So we're talking 2,500 years ago. And you decide if this is the exact same thing happening today. And I think once you do, once you see it, at least like I, I, I see it, it clicks for me and I hope I can make it click for you because now I look at all this happening and it just makes so much sense. You don't have to rack your brain about it anymore. This is the difference. This is the divide. So this is what uh, Victor Davis Hanson said. He said, city folk were laughed at in the comedies of Aristophanes as too impractical and too clever for their own good. While the unpolished, the, the country folk, while the country folk often displayed a more grounded sensibility. Okay, that's exactly what I was talking about with the CEOs versus PhDs. That's it. Barack Obama, city folk, all about the PhDs. Right? Chris Eliza's like, oh my gosh, why aren't there enough PhDs? There are not enough people in PhD with PhDs in Trump's cabinet. Meanwhile, Donald Trump, country folk, and we'll get to why Donald Trump, who himself is from the city, would ever be considered country folk. I'll get to that in a second. But country folk display a more grounded sensibility. CEOs. What's your actual experience? Because Rex Tillerson has run a company with 75,000 employees and the State Department happens to have 75,000 employees. He's been there. He knows how to do it. In classical literature, patriotism and civic militarism were also closely linked with farming and country life. In the 21st century, this is still true. The incubator of the U.S. officer corps is Red State America. Make America Great Again reverberated in the pro-military countryside because it emphasized an exceptionalism that's at odds with the left's embrace of global values. Remember after the election, we talked a lot about movies and, and how in literature and movies, the good guy is always from the country and the bad guy is always from the city. Always, every movie. It's never the other way around, right? Luke Skywalker, who's a farm boy, right? He had to go take on Darth Vader from the Death Star, right? The city. Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games. Right? You name the movie. I would say even Rocky Balboa. I mean, yeah, he was from Philadelphia. It wasn't exactly the country, but he was the poor parts of Philadelphia, right? He was a poor, simple, stupid-sounding um, rube. Right? So good guys are from the country. This is just in literature, in literature everywhere. Good guys are always from the country, bad guys from the city. That's how it goes. Because that reflects reality. And military heroes tend to come from the country because patriotism and civic duty is an ingrained part of the country culture it always has been and it's still true today here in america i love this line this is so good theocritus i don't know who that is and virgil so these are again poets from thousands of years ago reflected that in the trade-offs imposed by transforming societies the earthiness the excuse me the earthiness lost by city dwellers was more grievous to their souls than the absence of sophistication was to the souls of simpler farmers and shepherds. Uh, that's a complicated sentence. So uh, what he's saying is if you, uh, if you are a country person and you move to the city, right? So as, as societies transform, so you're from the country 
and you move to the city. The, the connection with the earth that you lose is more grievous to your soul than the country boy who stays in the country and never gains the sophistication of the city. Does that make sense? So if you're from the country and you never gain the sophistication of the city, like that's not great because it's good to have some sophistication of the city. But if you are from the country and you move to the city, yeah, you may become way more sophisticated, but you lose way more by leaving than you ever gain. And remember, we talked about months ago, we talked about an Aesop fable, the country mouse and the city mouse from 2500 BC, which has the exact same lesson. Right? So if you're a country person, it's better to stay in the country than to move to the city. This is why in the movie Gladiator, and, and in real life, Cincinnatus and George Washington and so many great heroes after battle or after service, they just want to go back to their farm. Isn't that amazing? It's been, this has been the case for human history for thousands of years. All right, one more point. Victor Davis Hanson, he says, changes come more slowly to rural interior areas. This explains why people uh, today, progressive city folk, Look at the country folk is backwards. Right? Values are backwards. Principles are backwards. The way they look at the world is backwards. Changes come more slowly to rural interior areas. Given that the sea, the historical importer of strange people and weird ideas, is far away. Maritime Athens, right on the water, on, on the coast, was liberal, democratic, and cosmopolitan. Its antithesis, landlocked Sparta, was oligarchic, provincial, and tradition-bound. In the same way, rural upstate New York is not Manhattan and Provo is not Portland. Isn't that amazing? Like the same thing today. The same divide. There's a reason why it's the blues, the blue areas of the country are not only the cities, but the coasts. Why is that? Think about that. Why is the cities, or excuse me, why are the coastal areas blue? Why are they democratic? Why are they progressive? It's because it's on the coast, right? And that's where, that's the, that's where the ports are. That's the importer of strange people and weird ideas. <laughs> Interesting, right? But if you're more in inland, changes come more slowly. It's been the case for thousands of years. There was an article written in 400 BC. It was an anonymous. It was written by someone in Athens. And he described the hustle and bustle and, and the materialism in the port city of um, uh, Piraeus. And it's still one of the largest ports in Europe today. And he said, if you want to destroy the purity of rural and a conservative society, then you need to just go ahead and follow the model of the city of Piraeus. So what he was really saying is, rest of Greece, don't follow the model of the city of Piraeus. I want to take a break here. I want to make a, a conclusion next year. I, I alluded to this earlier. How could Donald Trump be the champion of the country folk, right? You got the city-country divide. How could Donald Trump the guy born in Queens, Manhattan real estate billionaire. How could he ever be the leader of the country folk? How could he be embraced by that? How's that possible? Donald Trump should be considered the ultimate city slicker. I'll tell you exactly how we did it. 188-900-3393. Tell you next. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.
Snyder Crusaders talking about the real divide in our country, city versus country, um, city folk, country folk. How did Donald Trump, though? I only got three minutes here. How did Donald Trump, city slicker himself, become the uh, the leader of the country folk? Uh, very simple. Language. How many times throughout the campaign did you hear people say uh, about Trump, he says it like it is? Something like that. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you, people in the country, excuse me, people in the city would look at Trump's speeches like yesterday when you hear Rachel Maddow talk about it or whatever and just see short words, repetition. Uh, he says the same thing a couple times in a row. Like it's very easy to mock if you're from the city. But why does it work? Why does it work for people in the country? Is it because people in the country are stupid? This is Victor Davis Hanson, again, an ancient military historian, so he understands this, this divide that's always existed. He said, rural speech serves, by its very brevity and directness, as an enhancement to action. So it's not that country folk are stupid, it's that we, we want to go. Like it's, it's, a, it's about getting stuff done. Verbosity and rhetoric associated with urbanites were always rural targets in classical literature, precisely because they were seen as ways to disguise reality so as to advance impractical or subversive political agendas. Thucydides, nearly 2,500 years before George Orwell, feared how, in times of strife, words changed their meaning, with the more polished and urbane subverting the truth by masking it in rhetoric that didn't reflect reality. But in the countryside, however, crops either grow or wither. Trees either yield or remain barren. Rain either arrives or it's scarce. Words can't change these facts upon which living even one more day often depends. Trump's brevity speaks to country folk, especially coming out of an era where, uh, with Obama where, where verbosity was seen as a virtue where it was important to change your words so you don't hurt people's feelings, right? Can't use gender pronouns anymore. You can't say poor person or healthy or freshman or homeless. You can't even say American. Instead, it's uh, instead of poor, it's person who lacks the advantage of others. Or <laughs> It's like, see, see what I mean? Like you're trying to be subversive. Like what are you trying to hide? What do you mean person who lacks the advantage of others? Oh, you mean they don't have a lot of money? You can't say mothering or fathering because all oh, that uh, gender stereotypes, it's about uh, it's nurturing, you're nurturing. You can't say healthy, instead it's non-disabled individual. Right, so enough of this nonsense. The American people were yearning for someone to cut through the crap. So last quote here from Hanson, he said, to the rural mind, verbal gymnastics reveals dishonest politicians, biased journalists, and conniving bureaucrats who must hide what they really do and who they really are. So Trump was able to, to represent country folk and country folk were able to gravitate towards him because of his language, because of the way he spoke. Because we look at people, uh, politicians and bureaucrats and, and media and the way they use their language and we know they're hiding something. We can give you a million examples of that. Right? The way they word and all the rest. You're like, what are you trying? What are you, what are you, what are you really doing here? And that distrust has just reached such an apex that Trump comes in and just says, boom. Speaks quick, short, to the point. Powerfully. And the left looks at that as militant. Rachel Maddow yesterday said that this speech was militant. 
And people in the country look at that as just to the point. That's the difference. And it's always been there. Now, here's the bottom line. And I should end this and I should start this every time we talk about this divide. We need everyone. Right? We need country folk. We need city folk in every way. Economically, the, the city folk need the, the miners to mine the granite for their countertops and the, the lumberjacks to cut the wood for their mansion. And country folk need capital to buy farming equipment and people to sell their food to. So we need both economically and socially we do as well. We need people to push the boundaries of traditional values and we need people to bring us back to those values. Mike Slater Show, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. America's greatest country in the world. How are you? Happy Saturday. I want to uh, play this interview for you here. I think it gives a good little insight into into Donald Trump. Do what you want with it. So when did Donald Trump trademark Make America Great Again? When do you think he trademarked Make America Great Again? Take a guess. A little perspective uh, he announced he was going to run on June 16th, 2015. June 16th, 2015. So when did he register his, uh, or when did he trademark Make America Great Again? Now, could be after that, could be before it. Uh, just keep in mind, remember, there's a lot of talk about him doing this on a whim. You know, like, does he really even want to? That kind of thing. So could be after or right before. He applied for the trademark on January 12th, excuse me, November 12th, 2012, six days after Mitt Romney lost the election in 2012. Six days, he sat back in his chair and thought about running and then said, well, if I run, what slogan would I use and then trademarked it? I want to play this clip where he's doing an interview with the Washington Post he's talking about. Here it is. As soon as the loss took place, I said, I'll tell you what. Assuming I'm in a good position, assuming all of the things that you have to assume, which are many, uh, I'm going to run next time. I said Mm -hmm. it to myself. And I I sat back and I said, what would be a good expression? And I said, let's do this. I said, well, make America great. And I had sort of, we will make America great. Uh That was my first idea, but I didn't like it. And then all of a sudden it was going to be make America great. But that didn't work. Because that was a slight to America, because Uh that means that it was never great before. Uh And it has been great before. So I said, make America great again. I said, that is so good. I wrote it down. I went to my lawyers. I have a lot of lawyers in-house. We have Uh many lawyers. I said, see if you can have this registered and trademarked. And why trademark? I I got it. Well, I'll tell you why. And how many trademarks do you have? Do you have a lot of them? Hundreds, thousands, Uh actually. Uh Thousands. I have many, many trademarks. So I got it trademarked, Make America Great Again. And during, when I announced I was going to run, other of the candidates started using my expression. Uh-huh. They heard me use it. They saw that, I, and in all fairness, I had big crowds right from the beginning. I didn't start off with five people and build up. Uh-huh. We had big crowds from the beginning. 
Uh-huh. We wrote them legal letters, and they immediately ceased. And we wrote them a cease and desist letter. If I didn't have it registered in trademark, I wouldn't be able to do it. Now, here's the thing. I already have my expression in four years. Uh-huh. Okay, let's stop there. All right. <laughs> All right. So, so that's the process of this. It's, uh, do whatever you want with that. But he, six days after the election, he decided uh, what, the, what the slogan was going to be. Now, I love this clip here that I'm going to play for you because... Again, it's it it. Um, what's the expression they use in, in like movies and TV? It's, it's like tearing down the fourth wall. Right? Uh, you get a little a little behind the scenes of how Trump does things and who he really is. So, my favorite clip of Trump that we've ever played was an interview that he did on the Adam Carolla podcast. Now he was pretty close to Adam because um, Adam Carolla was a contestant on Celebrity Apprentice, so they kind of knew each other. Trump calls into his podcast and they talk, they go back and forth for a couple minutes and then Trump goes, okay, Adam, let me know when you want to get started. We'll get, we'll get going. And Adam goes, oh, we've been recording this. This is it. We're going. And Trump goes, oh, okay. Okay. And then they keep going for a couple more minutes. And then Trump goes, okay, Adam, let me know when you want to start. We'll start the interview. And Adam's like, no, we've, we've been like, this is it. We're, we're in the middle of it. So what that, and he goes, oh, Trump goes, oh, okay, okay. So what that shows is, what you could do is you could analyze Trump who's on, right, who's being interviewed, but then you also got a glimpse on Trump before, when he didn't think he was being interviewed, and how he acted before he thought it was going to be recorded. Same person. (laughs) It's the same. He was the exact same, to the point where... In the part where he didn't think he was being recorded, he goes, um, hey, Adam, did you check out me on uh, Kimmel last night? Oh, it was great. I mean, the ratings were huge. And he goes, he goes hey, Jim, hey, talk to, talk to Jerry. Get the ratings for Kimmel last night. Can you get the ratings for last night? I want to know the ratings. You know, Adam, I'm a ratings machine. <laughs> That's what he didn't think he was being recorded. I'm a ratings machine. Hilarious. Favorite clip I've ever come across with Trump. This is similar to that. So this is Trump's announcement on his campaign slogan for 2020. Here it is, 1285. That we will have such great success. Send my trademark lawyer in, please. Let's Are you it. ready? I'm ready. Keep America great. Wow. Exclamation point. With an exclamation Keep point. America great. And have you filed for it yet, or when do you file no, for it? No, you just reminded me. That's why. Get me my lawyer. <laughs> would you trademark and register uh, if you would? Um, do you like it? I think I like that, right? Great. I, I think. Do, do this. Keep America great with an exclamation point. Exclamation. With and without an exclamation. Keep America great. Got it. With or without an exclamation. It's going to be so amazing. It's the only reason I give it to you. If I, if I, was, uh, if I was, like, uh, ambiguous about, if I wasn't sure about what was going to be happening, we're going to make, the country's going to be so great. We have such great people, Karen. This country has such potential. I always have that. Hilarious. Hilarious. How awesome. It's just like, you just got people. And that's how he gets stuff done. Hey, I do this. And they just go do it, right? So we'll see how frustrated he gets in government land where he says, hey, go do this. And then they can't because it's it's politics. I want to transition here, but I think there's a this ties in. 
So we've said for months, for a year and a half, we talked about how Trump is a master brander, master negotiator, how he wasn't running a political campaign. He was running a business negotiation. So if you've been listening for a while, uh, you understand the full, complete background to this. You just got a little insight into how his mind thinks about marketing and about branding, right? It was, I think we're going to run right into what's the slogan going to be? Right, like that that's how his brain thinks because that's what he is. Right? That he's a businessman, he's a marketer, he's a promoter. That's his skill set. So that's how he thinks. And he understands the importance of these things. To the point where, do you remember a couple weeks ago when he was thinking about his cabinet and he was looking at John Bolton for Secretary of State? And it turns out that people have said, uh, people in his transition team said, that he didn't choose John Bolton because he has a mustache and he didn't look the part. He said John Bolton didn't look the part of Secretary of State. And, the, and his advisor said that he, in, in all the years he's worked with Trump, he doesn't know anyone around Trump who has facial hair. And he talked about how everyone around Trump looks the part. Now you may remember, oh, by the way, he ended up going with Rex Tillerson who looks the part. <laughs> Right, he looks like a Secretary of State. Mike Pence looks like a general. He looks like a vice president. Right, he's a, he's a strong, distinguished man. He looks the part, straight out of central casting, and that's a word that Donald Trump uses a lot. Uh, you'll hear central casting. He gets it. Imagery, visuals are important. He talked about the the people that he chooses to um, uh, be surrogates on television. Right, they have to look the part. Uh, there's another example. Oh. Uh, when he would say Hillary and Bernie don't look presidential, right? So you could think this is judgmental because, you know, it's about what's on the inside. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Trump understands the the power of that, the impact of of the visual and the impact of proper marketing and branding. That being said, I haven't heard anyone mention what I'm going to talk about right now for a minute. This is the most important part of the Obamacare replacement bill. I can't express this enough to the point where if Obamacare, if the Obamacare replacement bill is an amazing bill, but it doesn't have this one thing in it, it's going to crash and burn. And flip side, if it's a terrible bill, but it does have this one thing, it's going to be amazing and it's going to work. It's going to be successful and it's going to pass and people are going to love it. I'm telling you that this one thing, is the most important. Now, it shouldn't be. Don't get me wrong. It shouldn't be. This should, this should have, in a rational society, this should have nothing to do with the Obamacare replacement bill. Shouldn't even be of concern at all. It shouldn't make it one iota of difference. I want to be very clear with that. I'm not saying this is a good that this makes a difference, but I'm telling you it makes all the difference. What are you going to call it? What is the Obamacare replacement bill going to be called? Trump's a marketer. He's a salesman. What's he going to call it? It can't be Trump care. Jimmy Kimmel did a skit uh, last week where they went out into the streets, right? They did a man on the street thing. And they asked people, do you support Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act? Now, those are the same thing. But what you got was Obama supporters who loved Obamacare but hated the Affordable Care Act. 
And you had Trump supporters who hate Obamacare but love the Affordable Care Act. They're the same thing. Why do they love one and hate the other? Because it's got the person's name in it. That's it. So the, let's say Trump care, right? The Obamacare replacement, Trump care. It could be amazing, but it has Trump's name in it. And half the people hate, could, hate Trump. So it can't be called, it can't be called Trump care. It just can't. What are you going to call it? America care? I don't know. Maybe something like that, but it's got to like the, the name is everything. The name is everything. What are you going to call the Obamacare replacement? It can't be something lame. Like politicians lately do these, um, you know, long-winded name for acronyms and stuff like that. I don't think it can be something like that. It's got to be short, quick, sweet, unassailable, and and just, I don't know. I don't know what it's got to be. I think certain brand names are so, I think certain things are popular because of their name. And this is going to be an example of that. I mean, there's a lot of products that we call just by the brand name, right? Like jet ski, right? Well, it's actually called a personal watercraft, but we call it a jet ski. Jet ski is the brand. Uh, Crockpot. It's a crockpot. Crockpot's the brand. It's a slow cooker. Chapstick. Uh, Kleenex. Q-tips. Scotch tape. Tupperware. Band-Aid. Xerox. Styrofoam. These are all brand names, right? So Trump, the, the Obamacare replacement bill has to have a brand name that sticks. And it can't be divisive. It's everything. I'll be excited. I'm excited to see what he comes up with. It's got, and it, it has to be before other people call it something. You can't let the MSNBC come up with a name. Trump has to come up with a name. And it has to be unveiled right in the beginning, which is like next week. Something to think about. Something to be on the lookout for. 1-888-900-3393. 1-888-900-3393. If you have a suggestion on what to call the Obamacare replacement, send me a tweet. We'll... Um, We'll consider it. I'll send it off to the big man. Slater Radio on Twitter. S-L-A-T-E-R. Slater Radio on Twitter. All right, we'll talk about Betsy DeVos coming up next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. Slater for All right, I want to talk about Betsy DeVos. Uh, she is the pick for... Secretary of Education. I think she's a uh, a great choice, big school choice advocate. She's probably the the candidate who you're going to hear, or the nominee who you're going to hear the most uh, hatred about, because you have the unions who despise her because she's for uh, school choice and uh, she's for charter schools, and charter schools don't have unions, and the unions are well organized. Obviously, so you're going to hear a ton of attacks against her. Um, I want to play this clip here. Do we have clip uh, twelve eighty six? On the ready, this is the senator from Connecticut. His name's uh, Chris Murphy, who's talking to, uh, who's, who's grilling. Have you noticed every every time uh, you see an article or the news about these nomination processes, it's always the senators grilling the nominees. So here's Chris Murphy grilling uh, Betsy DeVos. Here it is. One final question. Do you think that guns have any place in or around schools? Uh, I think that's best left to locales and states to decide. If if the underlying question is, um, you can't say that you can't say definitively today that guns shouldn't be in schools. Well, I, I will refer back to uh, Senator Enzi and the school that he was talking about in Wapiti, Wyoming. I think probably there, I, I would imagine that there's probably a gun in the school to protect from potential grizzlies. If President if President Trump moves forward with his plan to ban gun-free school zones. Will you support that proposal? 
um, I will support what the president-elect does. But Okay, it's up there. So uh, let's go back to the original question here. Now, this video is being spread around. It's actually on Chuck Schumer's Facebook page because people on the left thinks that that makes Betsy DeVos look like an idiot. The reason she may not look good coming out of that is because it's a it's a dumb question. Um, and, and we got to be quick on this. So So the original question is, do you think guns have any place in or around schools? Do you remember uh, around Thanksgiving? Maybe it was Christmas. I think it was Thanksgiving. We gave some advice on how to debate, how to have a conversation with, how to change the minds um, with, with progressive friends or family members. How do you do that? How do you actually do that? And there's different things to do. I mean, if you want to win an argument, it's pretty simple. But if you want to change their mind, on a topic, well, it's very different. But either way, when you're talking to a progressive, ask them to define their terms. This is the most important thing to do. Define their terms. Everything. And you don't have to be... It's, good. it's great because, first of all, you don't talk a lot at all. You just ask questions. And it's very revealing. So, the question is, do you think guns have any place in or around schools? I would say, Senator, guns carried by whom? So in this hypothetical scenario, who are you talking about? And let, you know, let him answer, but I'll just pretend as if he's here. Uh, who are you talking about? Are you talking about varsity rifle teams? Because there are schools all across the country that have abandoned gun ranges in the basement where the rifle teams used to practice. And there's people listening right now who remember when they or classmates would bring their rifle to school because they had a match that night. So are you talking about competitive shooting guns for, for, for varsity teams? Okay, probably not because those don't exist much anymore. Uh, Senator, are you talking about police officers? Because, yes, I think guns should be held by police officers in and around schools. But by the way, around schools, what do you mean by around schools? Because in schools, like in, like in the building, but around, is around me like on the campus or do you mean like a, like a mile radius around the, the school? Like what do you mean by around the school exactly? And then let him talk about that. Um, Senator, are, are you talking about trained teachers having guns? Like teachers who are trained by local law enforcement and went through the gun safety classes and have regular follow-up training, should they be allowed to carry guns? Is that what you're talking about? Because yes, I think they, I think they should. But you talk about like, like should guns be allowed to enter on campus as if they have legs and they can walk in themselves? Because no, if a gun literally grew legs and walked into the school, I, I would stop that gun because that's just weird. I've never seen that before, and I would donate it to science. Because how did the gun grow legs? But if you're talking about who the gun is carried by, well, you got to be more specific. I mean, do you mean parents who have concealed carry permits? Should they be allowed to bring their gun on campus? No, that's a little more of a gray area. You know, we can have a conversation about it. I think they still should, but we can have a conversation about that. But Senator, I need you to be more specific with your question because I can't answer vague hypotheticals. And the bottom line is, Senator, you asked this at the end of your question, if I may. You said, would I be in support of banning gun-free zones? Well, I don't know. You, we already have gun-free zones. How's that working out for you, Senator? Ask for specifics and ask for clarification. I was talking to someone the other day, just yesterday, on my local show about uh, how privatized prisons have uh, have imprisoned black leaders. Okay? 
So it's a bold, it's a bold statement. And I said, who? You couldn't name it, right? So like, you gotta na- like if you're gonna make a statement like that, you have to be able to name one, right? Or or, or should should guns have any place in or around schools? Who? <laughs> so they like ask for specifics and ask them to define their terms. They'll run themselves in circles. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. More about Betsy DeBoss coming up next. Spread the word. Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Mighty Crusaders. Chat a couple minutes about Betsy DeVos here. Uh, again, choice for education secretary. Obviously, knives are out uh, against her because she's for school choice. How dare she? How dare she want parents to be able to choose what school to send their kids to? Unbelievable. What a wretched woman. Now, you're going to hear all the normal attacks. She's against your school. Blah, blah. All right, she, right. Um, uh, what was one uh, here I wrote? Oh, Newsweek. Betsy DeVos is coming for your public schools. Right? She's going to end public schools as we know it, which to me sounds like a great thing. But there's another attack that's underlying all of these, and you'll, you'll hear it woven into other uh, attacks against her, and it's not going to stop once she gets uh, uh, confirmed. It is that Betsy DeVos is a Christian. Now, we can talk about the charter school part, uh, and I would love to. Wall Street Journal. So she's from Michigan, and she's been leading a school choice movement in Michigan for a long time. And Wall Street Journal says that of the top 25 schools in Detroit, 18 of them are charter schools. And the bottom, the worst 25 schools in Detroit, 23 of those are traditional schools. Only two are charter. All right, so you top 25, 18 of them are charter. The bottom 25, only two. Now, are charter schools guaranteed to be the answer all the time? This is very, very important what I'm going to say here because the number one response when you talk about charter schools and how there are some great charter schools you get from uh, the, 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 the unions is, uh, well, what about this charter school over here? Blah, 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 blah. Yeah, not all charter schools. The charter schools aren't guaranteed to be the best school in town. The difference is, though, the charter schools that don't succeed go out of business public schools or traditional schools that fail get more money i know i mentioned this before but lincoln high here in san diego lincoln high 70 percent of 10th graders can't can't read at grade level 70 percent seven zero 70 percent can't read at grade level and the district said that the reason why, why test scores are so low at Lincoln High is because so many kids enter the ninth grade with a second grade reading level. Now, I, I, there's plenty of play to go around here. There's plenty at Lincoln High, but if kids are entering Lincoln High, it can't be Lincoln High's fault. So that means it's the whole system because what's up with third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade that would graduate and push on and move on kids who still can't read at a second grade reading level. The system is broken. But the system doesn't go out of business. Instead, Lincoln High 10 years ago got a $129 million renovation. $129 million for high school. And now it's near empty because 10 years later, it's so dangerous, parents won't send their kids there. Okay? So it failed and it gets more money. A charter school fails, it goes out of business. Big difference. All right, I'm getting off track. Once I get to talking about education, I just roll. So... Um, let me talk about Betsy DeVos again. 
the attack, the biggest attack against her, the underlying attack is that she's a Christian. Uh, this is Mother Jones. Betsy DeVos wants to use America's schools to build God's kingdom. The New Republic. DeVos represents the worst of the school choice movement because she is a, relig- a quote, religious zealot. Huffington Post. She doesn't belong in a government job in which separation of church and state is crucial. By the way, I was at a Bible study the other day and uh, my friend's daughter goes to a private Christian school and every week they're focusing on one of the Ten Commandments for 10 weeks. So they focus on one and then they, they weave it throughout uh, all the classes throughout the, 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 the week and then they talk about it everywhere they can in the school and then they move on to the next commandment. Uh, this used to happen in public school, right? Talking about the Ten Commandments, Ten Commandments in every classroom not long ago. This used to be uh, something that happened in public schools, and now it's verboten. Uh, this is my favorite attack, though. Newsweek did a little uh, little investigative journalism. Pretty impressive. We told you after Trump won, all these journalists are going to once again find a new calling for their profession. Uh, so they, they looked at her alma mater, her college, Calvin College, school in Grand Rapids, where she's from. So this is Newsweek. <clears throat> Any attempt to forecast what DeVos might do as Secretary of education must begin here at this college of 4,000 that bids its students. This is great. It doesn't instruct. It doesn't encourage. It bids, right? So there's like, like an evilness to that, right? Like, like they're like the kids are subjected by, by the, the overlords, like the overlords bid the students to act as quote, Christ's agents of renewal in the world. Sounds scary, doesn't it? That sounds scary. Christ's agents of renewal. By the way, it's a Christian college, obviously, right? So they they encourage students to become Christ's agents of renewal in the world. Now, if you are inclined to think that Christians are nuts, that sounds very scary. The person who wrote this Newsweek article, and we've talked about this before, um, I guarantee you, I, I can absolutely guarantee you that anyone who read this article from Newsweek, so whether the person who wrote it, the copy editor, the editor, the whoever, right? whoever reads these articles, none of them are Christian. None of them. Because any Christian would read that sentence and say, yeah. Like, what, what's the problem? But if you're not a Christian, that sounds super scary. Christ, like Christ is a scary word. And then agents of renewal, like what the heck is that? Like these are all like Jesus freak buzzwords. But all it means is that the world is broken and you should be a good person. Okay, that's what it means to be Christ's agent of renewal in the world. The world is broken, be a good person. (laughs) It means the world is a dark place and you should be a light. That's what it means. So, yeah, any attempt to forecast what DeVos might do as the education secretary must begin with her time at this Christian college that instructed students to become Christ's agents of renewal in the world. In other words, instructed their students to be good people. Which is why DeVos has donated millions of dollars to charities, including education-related charities, because she feels that if you can affect a kid's education and you can improve a kid's education, then you can improve the rest of their lives. They can have lasting benefits more than just a bowl of soup. 
So what you have there is just your classic attack on Christianity in America. The fact that she's a Christian at all is a bad thing. Weird. We'll take a break. I'll come back. Um, the Women's March or whatever happened or is happening now in cities across the country. There's one thing I would like to to say to the the uh, fine ladies who are marching for women's rights or uh, one here thing I hear is um, they don't don't take away our contraception or something or other like that. Uh, I want to chat about that. That's important. And this is the one thing I would say to them if I could uh, get the microphone at one of these events. We'll do that next. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater show the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I want to go to uh, Lisa in Kentucky. Lisa, how are you today? Hi, Mike. Good. I love your show. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. You too. And um, I just want to make a comment about the confirmation hearings about the Department of Education. Yes, ma'am. And can you reread that question? Yeah. Are you talking about the, uh, about the gun-related gun. question? Yes. Yes, it was. Uh, what do you think about having guns in or around campus? Yes, I would say, well, first of all, I I think and support guns in and around this Senate hearing room and building and campus. Wow. And so, of course, I support guns in or around public schools protecting our most precious and most vulnerable in our society, and our future of our country. <laughs> Beautiful, what do you Lisa. Think? Way to turn it around on them. That's perfect. That's perfect. I know it, right? Because how about this? What, and what if she? Uh, what if she even threw it back on the senator? Right. So I'm going to use your exact words, but just make it a question. Well, I don't know, Senator. What do you think about having guns in or around the Capitol building to keep us safe? Right. Put it yeah, on him. Yeah. She could have done that too. Yeah. Yep. Put it on, him. and then he'll yes. be like, ah, 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 ah. It's yeah. different. <laughs> you know, why is it different? Exactly. If anything, as you said, the school is, is even more important to protect. Exactly. Exactly. Lisa, I like it. Are you going to be uh, education secretary or, or up for any confirmation hearings? Hey, I could be. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wish you were. You, you do better than most. <laughs> Lisa, you're awesome. I Thank would. you so much for listening. Thank you. I love you. Thank you, Lisa. Have an awesome day. Look at that. Lisa from Kentucky. <laughs> uh-huh. she goes. Beautiful. Look at that. Anyone from Kentucky. That's what you just get. That's what you get. So I used to live in Tennessee, Lisa. I miss it. I miss Tennessee so much. I miss the people. I was just out to dinner last night with some friends here in San Diego, and they asked if there's a difference uh, in the people between here in Tennessee and Kentucky. Uh, and the answer is yes. <laughs> good. I know good people here. Don't get me wrong. Good people in San Diego. Um, but, oh, man, salt of the earth in Kentucky and Tennessee. I love it, Lisa. You brighten my day. Thanks so much. Um, all right. So today you got the Women's March. Lisa just uh, couldn't make it in D.C., but she's uh, she's a little too busy uh, to go to the, the Women's March in uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, if I were there and I could grab the microphone, this is what I would ask. In, in, in light and to the to the people there in light of what Lisa just did a great job of flipping it back around. Right. So in, in that spirit, I would flip it back around to them. Now, a quick backup fact, background fact here. Abortion, the abortion rate in America today is the lowest it's been at any recorded point. Now, what I'm going to give you are ratio numbers 
So bear with me for a second. So Roe v. Wade was 1973. Uh, that, that year, there were 16 abortions per 1,000 women, 16 per 1,000. It peaked in 1980, 29 abortions per 1,000 women. And it's been pretty steadily declining since then, since 1980. And now we're down to 14 abortions per 1,000 women. 2013 was the first time that it's fell below a million abortions since the 1970s. 1.6 million was the highest. So it was 1.6 million. Then in 2013, it fell under a million. And now it's a little bit lower than that. Now, Planned Parenthood says that the abortion rate is the lowest it's been in the last 40 years because women have greater access to birth control and contraception. Okay, I'll go with that. Sounds fine. But here's the craziest part about this. It's Republicans who want to make birth control even easier to get. Republicans want the pill to be available over the counter. It's the Democrats. It's Planned Parenthood who wants that to be illegal. Right right now, you got to get a doctor's prescription in order to get the pill. That's how Planned Parenthood wants it. It's Republicans who say, why? You should just be able to go right to CVS and buy the pill if you want. It's Republic, excuse me, it's Democrats and it's Planned Parenthood who want you to still need a doctor's prescription. That, I mean, that makes it harder, right? I mean, that's a, it's a roadblock in getting the bill, right? Why, do, why does Planned Parenthood want, you to requ- want a uh, prescription required? Why does Planned Parenthood want that? Because they want more people to walk through their doors. That's it. If women can just go get the pill over the counter, then there's no need for them to go to Planned Parenthood to get permission to buy the pill. So all these women marching in D.C. because, uh, as Cecilia Richards said, the head of Planned Parenthood, she said, we shouldn't go backwards on access to birth control. They literally are the people who want to make it harder to access birth control. It is completely backwards. So remember that when one of your coworkers or whoever says that they wish they could, uh, they could be at the Women's March because women deserve access to birth control. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's why Republicans want the pill to be over the counter. It's Planned Parenthood who wants it to need a, uh, who, who wants it to remain where you need to a, a doctor's prescription. Isn't that amazing? Totally, totally backwards. So I would get up in front of the march, in front of all the people, all the women there, and be like, "Hey, does everyone want birth control to be over the counter? Yeah, then vote Republican." I don't think they'd like that. Now. Everything you're seeing right here with the Women's March and this whole women's rights, whatever, it's been in the works for decades. Do you remember when Mitt Romney, it hit, it hit a peak though, when Mitt Romney was in one of the debates with George Stephanopoulos and out of nowhere, Stephanopoulos asked Mitt Romney if he thinks birth control should be illegal or, or, or should states be allowed to outlaw birth control? And, and Mitt Romney said, what? Like, like, what are you talking about? Like, I don't, he's like, I don't know if anyone ever, ever once proposing such a thing. Like, why are you asking me that? I've never, I've never heard of that. Where did that come from? Right. That was George Stephanopoulos getting fed a question because the whole plan was to make this a thing, to make this a lie that birth control would be banned if you don't what vote for Planned Parenthood. When in reality, it's the exact opposite. It's the Republicans who want to make it easier to accept. To access. Something to keep in mind.
1-888-933-93. Slater Radio on Twitter. I want to come back with a great example of why you need to be discerning. You need to have great discernment when you read uh, newspaper articles. I'll give you a little tip. If they have an article that involves numbers, but there are no numbers in the article, they're probably hiding something. Talk about it next. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. That is America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Um, I want to talk about being a, a discerning consumer of news. This has been a theme of the last year. The old uh, policy, the old posture was trust but verify. Right, The old Reagan mantra. Trust but verify. Just can't do that in the news anymore. You, you have to not believe anything you read or see or hear. You can't believe any of it until you prove it true. You can't assume it's true. You can't assume the context is given. You can't assume the writer has uh, digested all the facts and context and is only giving you the most relevant information for you to make up your mind. You can't assume that anyway. That's not how journalism works. You have to assume everything has an agenda. Everything is misconstrued. Everything is missing proper context and everything is wrong until you can prove it true. That's just the way it goes. Now you can, you cannot assume that and then just be misled all the time. Or you can go under the proper posture and and come away with um, something closer to the truth. I'll give you two examples of this. The first one is it's got a lot of numbers, and I know numbers are really hard over the radio, so I'm just going to go kind of quick on this one. But the second one's a really good example. I should probably flip it around, but I'll go with this one first. So you remember the little spat between Donald Trump and John Lewis, right? Civil rights icon. And Trump said, he talked about how John Lewis is, you know, needs to mind his own business and worry about his own district because his district is so dangerous. This is from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Uh, they wrote, quoting, an Atlanta Journal-Constitution analysis of the data found Atlanta's violent crime rate, one crime per 1,120 residents, landed Atlanta at number 14 nationally among cities with populations more than 200,000. Now, I will give the AJC a little bit of credit because the next sentence does say not all American cities have data in this report. For instance, Charlotte, North Carolina was not included, nor were New York City or Cleveland, Ohio. Okay, so so at least they 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 didn't just say so that. I mean, I, I, to be fair, right? Atlanta Journal-Constitution could have left that sentence out. And then how would you know that this report that has Atlanta at number 14 doesn't include New York city right? <laughs> or, or Cleveland or Charlotte or whatever. How would you know you wouldn't, right? So at least they gave you that. And I like that, but they made a pretty big mistake here. Now, back in the day, you would read that report and you would walk away with, well, 
Atlanta is not that dangerous. Trump said it's super dangerous. Like, it's not that dangerous. I mean, here's the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. These writers, I mean, they took time writing this report. Um, they say it's not that dangerous. I'll take their word for it. But today, you got to be super cynical. And if you're super cynical, you read that article and you read that paragraph that I just read you, and I hope you walked away with, with a question. I hope you said, when I read... Uh, Atlanta's violent crime rate, one crime per 1,120 residents. I hope you heard that and said, wait, what? What kind of statistic is that? That is the weird, like, I've never heard a stat like that in my life. Crime statistics are not reported one per 1,120 or whatever, like that. Crime statistics are, are uh, recorded based on number of crimes per 100,000 people, not number of people per one crime. And, and that's not the same. So what they did, they just did the math blunder. So they took the population of the city, 460,000, and divided it by the number of violent crimes, 5,200. And that equals 89.3. For some reason, that makes no sense at all. They divided 89.3 into 100,000. No idea why. <laughs> it makes, makes no sense. And the result is 1,120. And then they inexplicably interpreted that as one crime per 1,120. That makes no sense. That's a ridiculous math blunder. It totally it makes absolutely no sense. I know math is tough over the air. So I'm just going to cut to the chase. The reality is based on the same statistics that this newspaper was using, but just doing proper math, the crime rate is 14 times as high as what the newspaper reported. So they just like blew it. Like they just screwed up on the math. All right. So I know I went through quick on that one just because math's hard, but uh, hard over the radio. Let me give you this other example. This one's much more clear. You may have read some articles last week that, 2016 was the hottest year on record, right? Third year in a row where it was the hottest year. Now, this is a mathematical issue, right? This is a mathematical fact. What's the temperature? So you would think that articles that write about this would include numbers. <laughs> Are you with me? New York Times. Earth sets a temperature record for the third straight year. And it's this whole long article and they never once include any numbers. How can that be? This is the New York Times. Marking another milestone for a changing planet. Scientists reported on Wednesday that the Earth reached its highest temperature on record in 2016, trouncing a record set only a year earlier, which beat one set in 2014. It's the first time in the modern era of global warming data that temperatures have blown past the previous record three years in a row. What kind of reporting is it? What kind of objective reporting has the word trouncing? Oh, trounce the record and blowing past. Robert Trusinski said, uh, trouncing and blown past are phrases appropriate for sports reporting, not science reporting, except that no sports reporter would dare write an article in which he never bothers to give you the score of the game. And even the NASA and NOAA, uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they wrote a press release about it. And never in their press release did they mention what the temperature was this year compared to last year. So if you, are not, if you, if you do not have discernment, 
you would read these articles and be like, oh my gosh, if you trust but verify even, you'd read these articles and be like, oh my gosh, it was the hottest year on record. Blah, 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 blah. And, you, and you're more inclined to follow their uh, conclusions, right? That we need taxes on this, that, the other. But if you have a discerning eye, you read these articles and you say, well, wh- wh- what was the temperature last year? <laughs> what was the temperature last year? How does it compare to the year before? Tell me. You say it's a trouncing, but tell me what it is. What are you hiding? That's how you have to read the news. Now, I'll tell you the answer. But first, though, uh, we have uh, some football games tomorrow, right? So let's say, what is it, Packers-Falcons. Let's say the Packers trounce the Falcons. It's a trouncing. What would the score be? Okay, a full-blown trouncing. I would say 56-6, to right? Packers win 56-6. to That's a trouncing. Do you want to know how much hotter 2016 was compared to 2015? How much hotter do you think? Keep in mind, it's a trouncing. The New York Times says it's trouncing. Wait, let, me, let me pull the quote again. Uh, marking another milestone for a changing planet, scientists reported that the Earth reached its highest temperature on record in 2016, trouncing a record set only a year earlier. Okay, so how much hotter do you think 2016 was than 2015? 0.5. Zero one degree Celsius. That is one one hundredth of a degree. Trouncing. Now, here's the kicker with that. There in this in this the same report. There's a margin of error of point one degree. Remember margin of error, right? You mean the poles? Remember the presidential polls, right? It has Hillary up by three, but there's a margin of error of six. So it could be Trump's up by three, right? So margin of error of point one. So, so Robert Trusinski said, that's like saying the football's on the 10 yard line, give or take a hundred yards. Okay. There's your margin of error. It's on the 10 yard line, give or take a hundred yards. There's your report trouncing the record. That's why it's not included in the articles. Plus, you have the overall absurdity of recording the temperature of the planet, which in and of itself makes no sense. The planet's big. So live in San, I live in San Diego. San Diego is an interesting climate because we have the ocean, and then we have what we call inland, and then we have the mountains, and then we have the desert. So we have four different regions all within our county. So it's pretty wild. You can go, uh, you can go snowboarding or skiing in the mountains and surfing on the same day. And you can go to the, you can go to the desert, you can go to the desert and, and surf on the same day, right? So what's the temperature of San Diego? Well, it's 70 at the ocean, but it's 80 inland in my house. And it's 90 in the desert, but it's 30 in the mountains. That's all San Diego. So what's the temperature of San Diego? Is it 70? Is it 80? Is it 90? Is it 30? up in the mountains? Like, how do you even, that doesn't make any sense. So what do you do? We average them all together. Say, oh yeah, it's 74. Is it? Not if you're in the mountains. That's San Diego. How can you say it's 74? It's a hundred in the desert. Is it 74? Oh, that doesn't make any sense. And that's just San Diego. How can you say that about the planet? How can you talk about the temperature of the planet? And then how can you even with a straight face measure that to a hundredth of a degree and say it's a hundredth of a degree warmer? 
And then on top of that, throw it well, margin of error of a tenth of a degree. <laughs> and of course, they've only been recording temperatures since 1880. And how precise were those? Like, it's crazy. We all know the climate's always been changing. So even the concept of what's the temperature of the planet is absurd. But then to put on, to, to suggest that it's a hundredth of a degree warmer, when according to your margin of error, it could also be nine one hundredths colder than last year? Come on. That's why they don't put the numbers in their articles. We have to be discerning. one 888 933 I want to come back and uh, talk about some discernment we need to have with uh, Donald Trump and some things that the Republicans are going to do next week. Don't accept the status quo with certain things uh, when it comes to tax cuts and spending cuts and stuff like that. I'll explain next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. And just not trusting what anyone said. Um, now, I'm really excited about this week. I think a lot of things are going to happen. I think Trump's going to do a lot right away. We've heard that Trump is looking at a 20% cut in the federal workforce and a 10% spending cut. Now, rumors being thrown around, obviously we don't have any details. But I read something else. Now, we don't know yet. We don't know. Maybe this is all too soon. But I'm just as an example of, of asking questions. I also read that those 10% spending cuts from different departments is going to be transferred to the Defense Department. Now, I just want to be clear. I don't think we need to spend more on our military. Hear me out. Listen, 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 listen. We need to spend wiser. We need to spend smarter. And I think we can spend less on our military and get more. I think we can spend less on our military than we do now because of all the waste, fraud, and abuse and have a bigger military. What was the report the other day? There was, I forget what it was. Let me, hold on. This is important because I think people are going to think I'm a anti-war pansy. Um, there was some report just a couple weeks ago. Here it is. Pentagon, bear, this is Washington Post. Pentagon buries evidence of $125 billion in bureaucratic waste a year. Okay, so that's that's $125 billion on bureaucratic waste. That doesn't even include the waste of, like, like uh, at the end of the year, because it's, it's, we don't have zero-based budgeting. Uh, and every we've had many veterans call in and say that at the end of the year, they have a budget that's left over or they have some of their budget left over. So they just spend it so that they can go back next year and they don't get their budget cut. Right. So they'll just like blow through a bunch of ammunition or they'll buy a statue or they'll burn all the paper in the office. So they have to buy more to spend the money. Okay. That's like, that's, this is just bureaucratic waste on top of all the other ways. So I'm saying you could be more efficient with all that spend less and get more. I don't think we need to take more money and just throw it into the military and pat ourselves on the back because that means we love our military. I think we can spend smarter or at least spend the same and get more, right? Is that you know what I'm saying? Now, maybe we do need to spend more, but I don't think it, it looks like, oh, we'll just cut everything over here and just put all that money in our military. I don't think that necessarily makes sense. But that's not my point. When you hear about cuts to the federal workforce, most of the time, what that means is no one's going to be fired. It just means that they won't refill positions. So it's mostly hiring freezes. So someone retires and that position just isn't refilled. 
Is that cutting the federal workforce? Yeah, but it's over a long time. So it's not, eh, it's okay. How about the spending cut part? Most of the time, and you know this already, just a refresher. Most of the time, a spending cut isn't really a spending cut. So what they'll do is they'll say, well, in our budget for next year, we plan for an increase in $500 billion, right? We plan for an increase in $500 billion, but we're only going to really increase it by $300 billion. Now, Republicans pat themselves on the back for saying, look, we just cut $200 billion from the budget. And Democrats say, oh my gosh, can you believe it? The Democrats or the, the Republicans are horrible people. They just cut $200 billion from the budget. They're going to throw Graham off a cliff and everyone's going to die. And in reality, you didn't cut $200 billion from the budget. You've added $300 billion. It's the same bad logic when your wife buys something from the store because it's on sale and says, well, I saved $50. No, you spent a hundred. <laughs> you didn't save fifty. You spent a hundred. So it's the same thing here. Like, yeah, you you cut spending from what you were planning to increase it, but you're still increasing it from today. You're not really cutting it from today. That's not a real cut. So what we need to demand are real spending cuts, real spending cuts. Be on the lookout for this. When they say spending cuts, don't trust them. You have to look further, and I will do this as well. What kind of spending cuts? Are you really cutting spending, or are you cutting what you're planning to spend, which is still an increase? We must demand real spending cuts. We must demand real tax cuts. We must demand real reduction in the federal workforce. A real shrinking of government in real terms, not all compared to what it could be. One last thing, because I got two minutes. I want to see real massive simplification of the tax code. On Monday, uh, I had the chance to interview Steve Forbes and he's the big flat tax guy. His plan is, you ready for this? Now wait till the kicker. 17% flat tax everyone above, I think it's $52,000. So every, every, all money you make up to $52,000 is tax-free. Anything above $52,000, 17%. No deductions for anything other than kids. Now here's the kicker because I know you may be like, Oh, I don't like this. I don't like that. What about deductions for my house? What about deductions for this? What about this? It's a choice. You can either pay the new tax, the 17% flat tax with no deductions other than kids, or you can keep with the current tax code right now. So if you think you'll do better off with the current tax code, the current super complicated tax code with all the deductions and everything, go ahead. You continue with what we're doing right now. But if you think you'd be better off with a 17% flat tax, you go ahead and pay that. That's what I'm talking about. I love that. I love the choice aspect of that. So I want real tax simplification. I don't want, you know, uh, we're going to just get rid of this one half of a page of your otherwise thousand page tax return. I want a real dramatic simplification of the tax code. Now to wrap up with the media bias, are they going to report on that honestly? Or are they going to talk about any tax cuts or any, any cuts of spending or anything? Is it just going to be about how devastating this is going to be for grandma and poor children because all poor children are going to starve now because we didn't rehire someone from some obscure department in the Bureau of Land Management? Give me a break. Or are they going to say, you know what? You know, maybe we could cut the federal government by 20% and the world won't come to an end. Demand real. Slater Radio on Twitter, Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network, spread the word.
Mike Slater. Uh, I think I started the thing on Facebook. Shouldn't have done anything. I'm in trouble now. And check it out on our Facebook page. Search for the Mike Slater Show. Just walk away from all this. <laughs> you can check it out. You go enjoy. Do it on my behalf. Um, not going to comment anymore. Um, yeah, we uh, I'll share this story. This ties into what we were just talking about. Remember last week, I think we talked about it on the show last week, uh, the question was, should Donald Trump treat the media as the opposition party? Uh, and the answer is yes. As long as they act like the opposition party, they should be treated as such. David Burrs tweeted, he said, uh, media, here are 50 think pieces on why we must oppose Trump. Trump, the media is the opposition party. Media, how dare you? So once the press stops acting like the opposition party, then we'll be fine. Now, I, I want to be clear on what this, what this looks like. There is a big difference between a press that asks honest questions and investigates for the truth. That's great. That's what we want. We want a tough press. It's the fourth branch of government. Uh, it's, it's essential to a properly functioning uh, republic. Right? We want the press to keep the government of all parties accountable. But when the press is full of people who range from, and I'm being, this is the nice side. The nice side is people with such uh, inherent bias, which we all have, but they have such bias that they, they can't even self-assess their bias. All the way to just liars, right? When, when people in the media range in there, then that's trouble. And that's not what the press is supposed to do. There's so much bias from people who don't realize it because they're not searching for the full truth. I want to give you an example of that. The Washington Post the other day wrote an article about uh, gun silencers and how Donald Trump wants to make it easier for people to buy silencers for guns. So they wrote this entire article and it is so obvious, so obvious that the people who wrote it have never fired a gun ever it's so obvious that, that the people who wrote this article have no idea what a silencer is first of all they call it a silencer not a suppressor i mean that, that that alone but it's so obvious that their only encounter with a suppressor is a james bond movie right they they really think that if you put a silencer on a gun the gun goes pew pew Right. If you don't have a silencer on a gun, then everyone can hear it. But if you put it on, then pew, pew. and it's like, it's it, it, their 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 only knowledge is from like playing video games when they were a kid. And if you're playing GoldenEye on on, on Nintendo sixty four and you're going through the level uh, and you put you have guards that you have to shoot, right? If you shoot them with a regular gun, then all the other guards are going to hear. But in the in the in the video game, if you put the silencer, if you have the silencer gun, then the two guards can be standing next to each other and you can shoot one of them in the back of the head, and the other guard doesn't even know. Doesn't even know until he sees the body fall on the ground and then he turns around, but by then you already got it aimed on him, right? Like that's their silencer knowledge and experience. And then they write a whole article about it. So are they being liars? I don't know. I think they're more people who are just biased inherently, which we all are because we all come to everything with our own preconceived notions and conclusions and opinions and experiences and all that. But they don't have enough self-assessment to realize that. That's the problem. Maybe that's what journalism school needs to be. It needs to be an experience where you learn to recognize what you don't know 
So here's the background. There's a bill called the Hearing Protection Act. And it's because uh, gun enthusiasts want to make it easier to buy uh, suppressors to protect their hearing. So for whatever reason, someone asked Michael Ian Black, who's like a comedian guy, for some reason why he's against this bill. And he wrote back, a silent gun is an easier gun to use in the commission of a crime. Again, that doesn't, a silent gun? A si- there's no such thing as a silent gun. Guns with suppressors don't go pew, pew. So here's how this works. A little context. And again, this would be nice stuff to have in the actual article. We've all heard of the decibel scale. The decibel scale is a base 10 scale. It's not linear. So it's a lot like the Richter scale. Um, I don't know how much Richter scale knowledge you have, but out here in California, people have a pretty good knowledge of how the Richter scale works. Um, so let's let's do Richter scale first. So a, a four on the Richter scale is, is a pr- pretty good earthquake. You'll feel it. A five on the Richter scale isn't one point worse. It's not like a little bit worse. A five on the Richter scale is 10 times worse than a four. Okay, then a six on the Richter scale is 10 times worse than the five. It's a base 10. So so, so a six on the Richter scale is 100 times worse than a four. See how it goes like that? Same thing with decibels. So if something is... uh, a hundred on the decibel scale, it's 10 times louder than something that's a 90. You with me? So, uh, a jet engine from a hundred feet away. If you've ever been on a tarmac, uh, with the jet engine on, uh, it's 140 decibels An AR 15 unsuppressed 165 eardrums rupture at 150. Physical pain and potentially permanent hearing damage occurs at 140. The federal government outlaws anyone from working for longer than 15 minutes a day around 115 decibels. So think about the difference between 115 decibels and 165. Huge. But that's what an AR-15 is, 165 decibels. So if you fire a gun without suppression in your home, it's a good chance your eardrums are going to get blown out, which is why suppressors are a health issue. And again, guns don't silence. You take an AR-15, you shoot it without a suppressor, it's 165 decibels. You put a suppressor on it, it goes down to 135. It's about the sound of a jackhammer. Is a jackhammer silent? If I, went, if I was trying to rob a house and I was shooting people in the house and I, and I used a jackhammer, right? Unless I, was, unless I was just trying to go through a house and not wake anyone up and I was, I was going to use a jackhammer. Pretty sure I'd wake up the person in the upstairs, Okay doesn't make it easier when something is as loud as a jackhammer. Now, any report from the Washington Post or anyone in the media that does not give you that context is biased. And it's because inherently that the person who wrote that doesn't want you to think, or excuse me, does. They do want you to think that silencers are bad and they make it easier for bad guys to sneak in your home and, and kill people and rob banks without anyone else in the bank hearing the gun go off or whatever. But if someone wrote an article about that, um, let me word it like this. No, I'll say it like that. If, if someone, the Washington post, they wrote this article like this, whether they have a specific agenda and they're lying or they just don't know their, they don't know their own limitations, their own biases. 
they're f- not doing their job as an honest reporter and therefore are part of the opposition party. The opposition of the truth, the opposition of letting people know the full story, which is the media's job. The media's job here, the Washington Post, should have taken a minute to interview someone who knows what they're talking about, either for background knowledge or for quotes, and said, hey, here's why people who fire a lot of guns think it's really important to have silencers. Here's what happens uh, when you don't have a silencer. Here's what decibel levels are. Here's a little bit of comparison. Here's why silencers could be important. Oh, and also here are some people who think that they're dangerous. Here are some people who think that silencers shouldn't, right? Like you got to give the back and forth. You got to give all sides, all perspectives to help the reader make up their own mind and come to their own conclusion. Otherwise, what are you doing? Or I should say, otherwise, how should you be treated? Well, like the opposition party. And as Trump is making it very clear, the Washington Post, the Washington Times, the big six newspapers, whatever they are, they're no longer the gatekeepers of information. Did you hear that Donald Trump is uh, thinking about moving the White House press room into a different part of the White House that's much bigger? He wants to expand the number of people who are in the press room, which is wild. I love it because, you know, the attack against Trump is that he hates the media. He's going to shut down the media. He's going to take away the freedom of the press and all that stuff. And here's what he's doing with expanding the press room. He's making it bigger. He's doing the opposite of shutting down the press. He's opening it up. Now, why is he doing that? Because he doesn't want these big, these big six don't deserve it anymore, right? New York Times, New York Post, they don't deserve, uh, or New York Times, um, LA Times, uh, Wall, Street, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Washington Times, right? These big newspaper articles, these big TV stations, they don't deserve their privileged access anymore. Times have changed. They're no longer the gatekeepers of information. In the past, the White House had to go through the big newspapers and TV stations in order to dispense information. You don't have to be like that anymore. It's not, that's not the case anymore. So why treat them like they're special? They don't deserve it. Let some bloggers in. Let some radio people in. Let some smaller TV outlets in. He's blowing the gates wide open. I love it. one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. And then uh, check out our Facebook page. I just posted a bunch of stuff on Facebook about the marches today, and I probably shouldn't have. But check it out and uh, comment uh, liberally, meaning often. More liberally, if you want. one uh, 900 Slater Radio on, uh, on Twitter. Mike Slater Show, the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater is on. Slater, uh, Slater, do we have clip uh, 1290 by any chance? Do we have that on the uh, on the ready? This is uh, tuned on the tube, turned on the tube. Uh, this would have been two days ago, and I almost never watch TV news. Maybe, maybe once or twice a month. I was like, oh, you know, the election or the inaugurations tomorrow. I might as well uh, tune in and see what's going on. I tuned in right when this was going on. There was a protest going on in D.C., and the uh, reporter on Fox News went up to uh, like this 10 year old kid. You can get, do we have it here? Presidents, their signs thanking President Obama, obviously. It's mostly peaceful now. A fire broke out just behind us. There was a fire over here. We'll show you where that was. That's the ashes now, just sort of starting to simmer right in the middle of this. Excuse me one second. Pardon me one second. Very sure. This uh, this fire was started. In fact, this young man, you were participating in the fire. What's your name? Uh, my name's Carter, and I actually start, kind of started this fire. So why'd you start that fire, Carter? Uh, it's Carter. Sorry, why'd you start that fire? Because I felt like it, and because I'm just uh, saying 
Score, president. Okay, well, there, right, there you go. So he's, uh, he's like 10. So you just think, I mean, the kid's 10. What first of all what he's even doing there? But you know he's not, he doesn't know what he does. I'm not criticizing him. It's his parents, right? We talked earlier about liberals always say, you know, the the, uh, the world is watching and the kids are watching. How can Donald Trump say these things? Our kids are watching. Well, clearly that kid heard his parents yell at the TV. Uh, he sucks or whatever, right? So they're just parroting that. So I heard that and I was wondering what I would tell my son if... Uh, if Hillary won or someone who I didn't disagree or didn't agree with. Uh, now my son, Jack is, uh, four months old. <laughs> so I probably wouldn't say anything, but let's say he was eight years old. Let's say he was 10 years old and I was disappointed with the presidential election results. What would I do? Well, I remember the theme of last year was a quote from Jonathan Edwards, a 17th century theologian. He said, resolution one, I will live for God. Resolution two, when no one else does, I still will. And I'd remind my son that people make mistakes, but our job is to not get swept up by what other people are doing and to still stand up for what we know is right, no matter what. Even if a majority of the country thinks that the other person is right or we are wrong, we're still going to stand up for what's right, no matter what. As it says in Proverbs, let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Do not turn to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. I'd read all the Proverbs with my son. All of them. Because when you read them, there's no way you can come to the conclusion that you should go light anything on fire. And I'd remind Jack of, uh, I'd remind my son that politicians, uh, politics isn't everything. I think one of the first segments of the show, we talked about the C.S. Lewis quote, where he said, um, I won't quote it here because it's a complicated quote, as C.S. Lewis says. I love C.S. Lewis. He's one of my favorite authors, but I always have to read everything he says twice because I, I don't get it. <laughs> uh, but he basically said, a sick society thinks only about politics. And he compared that to a sick person who only thinks about food, like what they're going to eat because they're sick. They're not well. So they have to think about food in order to stay alive. And his point is, if all you think about is food... You're missing the point of food, right? Food is, doesn't exist so that you can eat. Digestion doesn't exist for the sake of digestion. It exists so that you can live and go out and do other things. Politics, in the same way, isn't its own end. Politics is a necessary evil so that you can go out and in his case, and what I believe is true, worship God. Like that's the point. Politics is a means to an end. Politics is not the end. So I would remind my son that, uh, okay, we lost an election or our person didn't win, but that's okay. That's not the end. Stand up for what you think is right. Keep going. Look straight ahead. Fix your gaze ahead. Keep your foot from evil and realize what's truly important in our, in our lives. That would be my society. To, that would be my question to Jack or my response to Jack. Or we could go to Washington, D.C., a bunch of, a bunch of riders and light stuff on fire. Either one of those. But you decide what's more productive. Slater Radio on Twitter, uh, Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Again, please go there. I put some stuff about the uh, the women's march going on right now. 
would love your uh, your help with that. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook, and we'll see you next Saturday. Have a wonderful weekend. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.